Chapter Three of the Gorilla Hunters by R. M. Ballantyne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adele de Pignoroles. Chapter Three: Wherein I Mount Guard and How I Did It, etc. Now it so happened that the battle which I had to fight with myself after taking my post was precisely the converse of that which I fought during the earlier part of that night. Then it was a battle with wakefulness. Now it was a struggle with sleep, and of the two fights the latter was the most severe by far. I began by laying down my rifle close by my side, leaning back in a sitting posture against the palm tree, and resigning myself to contemplation of the fire, which burned merrily before me, while I pondered within myself how I should best employ my thoughts during the three long hours of my watch. But I had not dwelt on that subject more than three minutes, when I was rudely startled by my own head falling suddenly and heavily forward on my chest. I immediately roused myself. "'Ah, Ralph, Ralph,' said I to myself in a whisper, "'this won't do, lad. To sleep at your post, shame on you. Had you been a sentinel in time of war, that nod would have cost you your life, supposing you to have been caught in the act.' Soliloquizing thus, I arose and shook myself. Then I slapped my chest several times, and pulled my nose, and sat down again. Only a few minutes elapsed before the same thing occurred to me again, so I leapt up and mended the fires, and walked to and fro, until I felt thoroughly awake. But in order to make sure that it should not occur again, I walked to the edge of the circle of light, and gazed for some time into the dark forest, as I had done before. While standing thus I felt my knees give way, as if they had suddenly been paralyzed, and I awoke just in time to present myself falling to the ground. I must confess I was much amazed at this, for although I had often read of soldiers falling asleep standing at their posts, I had never believed the thing possible. I now became rather anxious, for, thought I, if I go to sleep and the fires die down, who knows but wild beasts may come upon us and kill us before we can seize our arms. For a moment or two I meditated waking Jack and begging him to keep me company, but when I reflected that his watch was to come immediately after mine, I had not the heart to do it. No, said I, and I said it aloud for the purpose of preventing drowsiness. No, I will fight this battle alone. I will repeat some stanzas from my favorite authors. Yes, I will try to remember a portion of A Midsummer Night's Dream. It will be somewhat appropriate to my present circumstances. Big with this resolve, I sat down with my face to the fire and my back to the palm tree, and fell sound asleep immediately. How long I lay in this condition I know not, but I was suddenly awakened by a yell so appalling that my heart leapt as if into my throat, and my nerves thrilled with horror. For one instant I was paralyzed, then my blood seemed to rebound on its course. I sprang up and attempted to seize my rifle. The reader may judge my state of mind when I observed that it was gone. I leapt towards the fire, and grasping a lighted brand, turned round and glared into the woods in the direction whence the yell came. It was grey dawn, and I could see things pretty distinctly, but the only living object that met my gaze was Peterkin, who stood with my rifle in his hand, laughing heartily. I immediately turned to look at Jack, who was sitting up in the spot where he had passed the night, with a sleepy smile on his countenance. "'Why, what's the meaning of this?' I inquired. "'The meaning of it?' cried Peterkin, as he advanced and restored the rifle to its place. "'A pretty fellow are you to mount guard.' We might have all been murdered in our sleep by niggers or eaten alive by gorillas, for all that you would have done to save us. 
"'But, Peterkin,' said I gravely, "'you ought not to have startled me so. "'You gave me a terrible fright. "'People have been driven mad before now, I assure you, by practical jokes.' "'My dear fellow,' cried Peterkin, with some earnestness, "'I know that as well as you. "'But, in the first place, you are guilty of so heinous a crime "'that I determined to punish you, "'and at the same time to do it in a way "'that would impress it forcibly upon your memory. "'And in the second place, I would not have done it at all "'had I not known that your nerves are as strong as those of a dray-horse. "'You ought to be taking shame to yourself on account of your fault, "'rather than objecting to your punishment.' "'Peterkin is right, my boy,' said Jack, laughing, "'though I must say he had need be sure of the nerves of any one "'to whom he intends to administer such a ferocious yell as that. "'Anyhow, I have no reason to complain, "'for you have given me a good long sleep, "'although I can't say exactly that you have taken my watch. "'It will be broad daylight in half an hour, "'so we must be stirring, comrades.' "'On considering the subject, "'I admitted the first of these remarks, "'and felt somewhat crestfallen.' No doubt my companions had treated the thing jocularly, and, to say truth, there was much that was comical in the whole affair, but the more I thought of it, the more I came to perceive how terrible might have been the consequences of my unfaithfulness as a sentinel. I laid the lesson to heart, and I can truly say that from that day to this, I have never again been guilty of the crime of sleeping at my post. We now busied ourselves in collecting together the dying embers of our fire and in preparing breakfast which consisted of tea, hard biscuit, and cold monkey. None of us liked the monkey. Not that its flesh was bad, quite the contrary, but it looked so like a small roasted baby we could not relish it at all. However, it was all we had, for we had set off on this hunting excursion intending to live by rifles, but had been unfortunate, having seen nothing except a monkey or two. The kettle was soon boiled, and we sat down to our meagre fare with hearty appetites. While we are thus engaged, I shall turn aside for a little and tell the reader, in one or two brief sentences, how we got to this place. We shipped in a merchant ship at Liverpool, and sailed for the west coast of Africa. Arrived there we found a party, under the command of a Portuguese trader, about to set off to the interior. He could speak a little English, so we arranged to go with him as far as he intended to proceed, learn as much of the native language as possible while in his company, and then obtain a native guide to conduct it to the country in which Jerusalem are found. To this native guide, we arranged, should be explained by the trader our object in visiting the country, so that he might tell the tribes whom we intended to visit. This, we found, was an absolutely needful precaution on the following ground. The natives of Africa have a singular and very bad style of carrying on trade with the white men who visit their shores. The traffic consists chiefly of ivory, barwood, of wood much used in dyeing, and india rubber. The natives of the far interior are not allowed to carry these commodities directly to the coast, but by the law of the land, which means the law of the strongest, for they are absolute savages, are obliged to deliver their goods to the care of the tribe next to them. These pass them on to the next tribe, and so on they go from tribe to tribe till they reach the coast, where they are sold by the tribe there. The price obtained, which usually consists of guns, powder, and shot, looking-glasses, cloth, and sundry other articles and trinkets useful to men in a savage state, is returned to the owners in the far interior through the same channel. But as each tribe deducts a percentage for its trouble, the price dwindles down as it goes, until a mere trifle, sometimes nothing at all, remains to be handed over to the unfortunate people of the tribe who originally sent off the goods for sale. 
Of course, such a system almost paralyzes tribes. But in the intermediate tribes between the coast and the interior, being gainers by the system, are exceedingly jealous of anything like an attempt to carry on direct trade. They are ready to go to war with the tribes of the interior, should they attempt it, and they throw all the opposition they can in the way of the few white men who ever penetrate the interior for such a purpose. It will thus be seen that our travels would be hindered very much, if not stopped altogether, and ourselves be regarded with jealousy, or perhaps murdered, if our motives in going inland were not fully and satisfactorily explained to the different tribes as we pass through their lands. And we therefore propose to overcome the difficulty by taking a native guide with us from the tribe with which we should chance to be residing when obliged to separate from the Portuguese trader. We had now reached this point. The day before that on which we encamped in the woods, as above related, we arrived at a native village, and had been received kindly by the king. Almost immediately after our arrival, we heard so many stories about gorillas, that I felt persuaded we should fall in with one if we went to hunting, and being exceedingly anxious to add one to my collection of animals, for I had a small museum at home, I prevailed on Jack and Peterkin to go one day's journey into the bush to look for them. They laughed very much at me indeed, and said that we were still very far away from the gorilla country. But I had read in some work on Africa a remark to the effect that there is no cordillera, or mountain range, extending across the whole continent to limit the habitat of certain classes of animals, and I thought that if any animal in Africa would not consent to remain in one region, when it wished to go to another, that animal must be the ferocious gorilla. The trader also laughed at me, and said that he had never seen any himself in that region, and that we would have to cross the desert before seeing them. Still, I felt the disposition to try. Besides, I felt certain that we should at least fall in with some sort of animals or plants or minerals that would be worth collecting, so it was agreed that we should go out for a single day, and be back in time for a great elephant hunt which was about to take place. But to return from this digression, having finished breakfast, we made three bundles or packages of our blankets, provisions, and camp equipage, strapped them on our backs, and then, shouldering our rifles, set out on our return to the Negro village. Of course we gave Jack the largest and heaviest bundle to carry. Peterkin's and mine were about equal, for although I was taller than Peterkin, I was not by any means so powerful or active. I often wondered at the great strength that lay in the little frame of my friend. To look at him, no one would believe that he was such a tough, wiry, hardy little fellow. He was the same hardy, jovial creature that I had lived with so pleasantly when he and Jack and I were cast away on the coral island. With the exception of a small scrap of whisker on each cheek, a scar over the right eye, and a certain air of manliness, there was little change in my comrade. "'Ralph,' said Jack, as we strode along through the forest, "'do you remember how we three used to wander about together in the woods of our coral island?' "'Remember?' I cried with enthusiasm, for at that moment the thought occurred to my own mind. "'How can I ever forget it, Jack?' It seems to me just like yesterday. I can hardly believe that six long years have passed since we drank that delicious natural lemonade out of the green coconuts, and wandered on the coral beach, and visited Penguin Island, and dived into the cave to escape the pirates. The whole scene rises up before me so vividly I could fancy we were there. Ah, these were happy times. So they were, cried Peterkin. But don't you go and become sentimentally sad, Ralph, when you talk of those happy days. 
If we were happy there, are we not happy here? There's no change in us, except, indeed, that Jack has become a gorilla. Ay, and you a monkey, retorted Jack. True, and Ralph a naturalist, which is the strangest beast of all, added Peterkin. Can you tell me, Ralph, by the way, what true that is? I'm sure I cannot tell. Never saw or heard of one like it before, I replied, looking at the tree referred to with some interest. It was a fine tree, but the great beauty about it was the gorgeous fruit with which it was laden. It hung in the form of bunches of large grapes, and was of the brightest scarlet color. The glowing bunches seemed like precious gems glittering among the green foliage, and I observed that a few monkeys and several parrots were peeping at us through the branches. "'It seems good for food,' said Jack. "'You'd better climb up, Peterkin, and pull a few branches. "'The puggies won't mind you, of course, being one of themselves.' "'Ralph,' said Peterkin, turning to me, and deigning no reply to Jack, "'you call yourself a naturalist, so I suppose you are acquainted with the habits of monkeys, "'and can turn your knowledge to practical account.' "'Well,' I replied, "'I know something about the monkey tribes, "'but I cannot say that at this moment I remember any particular habit "'of which we might avail ourselves.' "'Do you not? Well, now, that's odd. "'I'm a student of nature myself.' and I have picked up a little useful knowledge in the course of my travels. Did you ever travel so far as the zoological gardens in London? Of course I have done so, often. And did you ever observe a peculiar species of monkey which, when you made a face at it, instantly flew into a towering passion, and shook the bars of its cage until you expected to see them broken? Yes, said I, laughing. What then? "'Look here, you naturalist, and I'll put a wrinkle on your horn. "'Yonder hangs a magnificent bunch of that fruit that I very much desire to possess.' "'But it's too high to reach,' said I. "'But there's a monkey sitting beside it,' said Peterkin. "'I see. You don't expect him to pull it and throw it down, do you?' "'Oh, no, certainly not, but—' "'Here Peterkin stepped up to the tree, and looking at the monkey, said, "'Oo, oo, 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 angrily. Ooh, 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 replied the monkey, stretching out its neck and looking down with an expression of surprise and indignation, as if to say, What on earth do you mean by that? Ooh, 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 roared Peterkin. Hereupon the monkey uttered a terrific shriek of passion, exposed all its teeth and gums, glared at its adversary like a little fiend, and, seizing the branch with both hands, shook it with all its might. The result was that not only did the coveted branch of fruit fall to the ground, but a perfect shower of bunches came down, one of which hit Jack on the forehead, and, bursting there, sent its fragrant juice down his face and into his beard, while the parrots and all the other monkeys took to flight, shrieking with mingled terror and rage. "'You see, I'm a practical man,' observed Peterkin quietly, as he picked up the fruit and began to eat it. "'Knowledge is power, my boy. A man with a philosophical turn of mind like yourself ought to have been up to a dodge of this sort. How capital this fruit is, to be sure!' Does it make good pomade, Jack? Excellent, but as I am not in the habit of using pomade, I shall wash this out of my beard as quickly as possible. While Jack went to a brook that ran close to where we stood, I tasted the fruit, and found it most excellent, the pulp being juicy, with a very pleasant favor. While we were thus engaged, a wild pig ran grunting past us. "'Doesn't that remind you of some of our doings on the Coral Island, Ralph?' 
said Peterkin. Before I could reply, a herd of lovely small gazelles drew past. Our rifles were lying on the ground, and before either of us could take aim, the swift creatures were lost inside of the thick underwood. Peterkin fired one shot at a venture, but without any result. We were still deploring our stupidity in not having our rifles handy, when a strange sound was heard in the distance. By this time Jack had come up, so we all three seized our rifles and listened intently. The sound was evidently approaching. It was a low, dull, booming roar, which at one moment seemed to be distant thunder, and another the cry of some huge animal in rage or pain. Presently the beating of heavy hoofs on the turf and the crash of branches were heard. Each of us sprang instinctively towards a tree, feeling that were danger near its trunk would afford us some protection. Being ignorant, as yet, of the cries of the various wild beasts inhabiting those woods, we were greatly of a loss to determine what creature it could be that approached at such headlong speed. That its mad career was caused by fear soon became apparent, for the tones of terror, either in man or beast, when distinctly heard, could not be mistaken. Immediately in front of the spot where we stood was an open space or glade of considerable extent. Toward this the animal approached, as was evident from the increasing loudness of its wild roar, which was almost continuous. In another moment the thick wall of underwood at its farther extremity was burst asunder with a crash, and a wild buffalo bull bounded into the plain and dashed madly across. On its neck was crouched a leopard, which had fixed its claws and teeth deep into the flesh of the agonized animal. In vain did the bull bound and rear, toss and plunge. At one moment it ran like the wind, the next it stopped with such violence as to tear up the turf and scatter it around. Then it reared, almost falling back. Anon it plunged and rushed on again, with the foam flying from its mouth, and its bloodshot eyes glaring with the fire of rage and terror, while the woods seemed to tremble with its loud and deep-toned bellowing. Twice in its passage across the open glade it ran, in its bland furry, straight against the tree, almost beating in its skull, and for a moment arresting its progress, but it instantly recovered the shock and burst away again as madly as ever. But no effort that it was capable of making could relieve the poor creature from its deadly burden, or cause the leopard in the slightest degree to relax its fatal grip. It chanced that the wild bull's mad gallop was in a direction that brought it within a few yards of the spot where we stood, so we prepared to bring an end to its misery. As it drew near, Jack, who was in advance, raised his rifle. I, being only a short distance from him, also made ready to fire, although I confess that in the agitation of the moment I could not make up my mind whether I should fire at the buffalo or the leopard. As far as I can recall my rapid and disjointed thoughts on the exciting occasion, I reasoned thus. If I shoot the leopard, the bull will escape, and if I shoot the bull, the leopard will escape. It did not occur to me at that trying moment, when self-possession and decision were so necessary, that I might shoot the bull with one barrel and the leopard with the other. Still less did it occur to me that I might miss bull and leopard altogether. While I was engaged in this hurried train of troubled thought, Jack fired both barrels of his rifle, one after the other, as quickly as possible. The bull stumbled forward upon its knees. In order to make assurance doubly sure, I aimed at its head and fired both barrels at once. Instantly the bull rose, with a hideous bellow, and stood for one moment irresolute, glaring at its new enemies. The leopard, I observed, was no longer on its back. At this moment I heard an exclamation of anger, 
and looking round i observed peterkin struggling violently in the grasp of one of the wild vines or thorny plants which abound in some parts of the african forest and render them almost impassable it seems that as the bull drew near peterkin who like jack and me was preparing to shoot found that a dense thicket came between him and the game so as to prevent his firing he leapt nimbly over a bush intending to run to another spot whence he could more conveniently take aim but found himself as i have related suddenly entangled among the thorns in such a way that the more that he struggled the more firmly he became ensnared being of an impatient disposition he did struggle violently and it was this probably that attracted the attention of the bull and decided its future course and its ultimate fate for after remaining one moment as i have stated in an irresolute attitude it turned suddenly to the raft and rushed with its head down its tail up straight at peterkin i cannot describe the sensations that overwhelmed me on observing the imminent danger of my friend horror almost overwhelmed me as i gazed with a stare of fascination at the frightful brute which with flashing eyes and bloody foam dripping from its mouth charged into the thicket and crashed through the tough boughs and bushes as if they were grass a film came over my eyes i tried to reload my rifle but my trembling hand refused to act and i groaned with mingled shame and despair on finding myself thus incapable of action in the hour of extreme peril at that moment i felt i would joyfully have given my own life to have saved that of peterkin it takes me long to describe it but the whole scene passed with the rapidity almost of a flash of light jack did not even attempt to load but uttering a fearful cry he sprang towards our friend with a bound like that of an enraged tiger a gleam of hope flashed through my soul as i beheld his gigantic form dash through the underwood it seemed to me as if no living creature could withstand such a furious onset alas for peterkin had his life depended on jack strong and lion-like though he was his aid could not have been in time a higher power nerved his arm and steeled his heart at that moment as i gazed helplessly at peterkin i observed that he suddenly ceased his struggles to get free and throwing forward the muzzle of his piece stood boldly up and awaited the onset with calm self-possession the bull was on him almost in an instant one stride more and he would have been lost but that stride was never taken his rifle poured its deadly charge into the skull of the wild bull which fell a mass of dead flesh literally at his feet it were vain to attempt to describe the state of our feelings on this memorable occasion the fervour with which we thanked our heavenly father for our friend's deliverance the delight with which we shook hands again and again and embraced him it was with considerable difficulty that we extricated peterkin from his entanglement when this was accomplished we proceeded to examine our prize we were not a little puzzled on discovering that only three bullets had struck the skull for my part i fired straight at his forehead and had felt certain at the time that my shots had taken effect yet there was but one ball in the animal's head and that was undoubtedly peterkin's for all the hair round the hole was singed off so near had it been to him when he fired the other two shots were rather right apart one in the shoulder the other in the neck and both would have proved mortal in the long run but neither was sufficiently near to a vital spot to kill speedily now ralph my boy said jack after our excitement was in some degree abated you and i must divide the honour of these two shots for i fear we can't tell which of us fired them peterkin only fired once and that was pretty effectual yes i replied that is rather perplexing 
for although I have no objection whatever to your having all the honour of those two shots, still one likes to know with certainty who actually made them. "'You'd better toss for them,' suggested Peterkin, who was seated on the trunk of a fallen tree, examining, with a somewhat rueful countenance, the tattered condition of his garments. "'There would not be much satisfaction in that,' replied Jack, laughing. "'It is probable,' said I, "'that each of us hit with one barrel and missed with the other.' "'And it is possible,' added Jack, "'that one of us hit with both, and the other missed with both. "'All that I can positively affirm is that I fired both barrels at his shoulder, "'one after the other. "'And all that I am certain of,' said I, "'is that I fired both barrels at his forehead, "'and that I discharged them both at once.' "'Did you?' said Peterkin, looking up quickly. "'Then, Ralph, I'm afraid you must give all the honour to Jack, "'for you have missed altogether.' "'How do you know that?' I asked, in a somewhat piqued tone. "'Simply enough. "'If you fired both shots together at so short a distance, "'they would have been found close together wherever they had struck, "'whereas the two shots in the neck and shoulder are more than two feet apart.' "'I was compelled to admit there was much truth in the observation, "'but still felt unwilling to give up all claim to having assisted in slaying our first buffalo.' I pondered the subject a good deal during the remainder of our time we spent in cutting up and packing part of the buffalo meat, and in preparing to continue our journey, but could come at no satisfactory conclusion in my own mind, and to say the truth, I felt not a little crestfallen at my conduct in the whole affair. While wandering in this mood near the spot where the buffalo had been first wounded, I received a sudden and severe start on observing the leopard crouching within a couple yards of me. I saw it through the bushes quite distinctly, but could not make quite sure of its attitude. With a mingled cry of alarm and astonishment, I sprang back to the place where I had left my rifle. Jack and Peterkin instantly ran up with their places cocked. "'Where is it?' they cried in a breath. "'There, crouching just behind that bush.' Jack darted forward. "'Crouching!' he cried, with a loud laugh, seizing the animal by the tail and dragging it forward. "'Why, it's dead, stone dead.' "'Dead as mutton,' said Peterkin. "'Hello, what's this?' he added, in surprise. Two holes close together in its forehead, I do declare. "'Hooray! Ralph, my boy, give us your paw. "'You've missed the bowl and hit the leopard. "'If you haven't been and put two bullets right between his two eyes, I'm a Dutchman.' "'And so, in truth, it turned out. "'I had aimed at the bowl and hit the leopard. "'So I left that spot, not a little pleased with my bad aim and my good fortune.' End of chapter 3 Recording by Adele de Pinuroles.